Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to, the, to this program today, which we are doing in partnership with the Gastric Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care, and the program title is Gastric Cancer Treatment Advances. And today's program is supported by Astellas US, LLC, Bristol Myers Squibb, and a grant from Genentech. And we are very grateful for their support of the program today. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. We have over 300 participants on this program today. And you come from all over um, the United States, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of uh, people from international countries, Australia, Canada, Egypt, Kenya, Lithuania, Malawi, Mauritius, Morocco, Nepal, Nigeria, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So this is really um, a global call as well. And it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joffrey Kuhl. And Dr. Kuhl is medical oncologist, head of the esophagastric section gastrointestinal oncology service, assistant attending physician, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Kuhl will be addressing an overview of gastric cancer, including diagnosis and staging, current standard of care, including chemotherapy, updates from ASCO on the treatment of gastric cancer, and new treatment approaches and the role of targeted treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kuhl. Hi there, Carolyn. Really good to be with you again um, you know, for these semi-annual talks. So, you know, to jump right into it, um, stomach cancer is um, uh, uncommon in the U.S. and Western Europe, but very common in other parts of the world, uh, especially East Asia uh, and, and some other developing countries as well. So we think the big difference in incidence is because of infection with a, a bacterium called H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori. Uh, this is typically more common in developing countries. It's typically more common in places in the world where food is not refrigerated. Um, it's actually a bacterium that people get when they're kids. Uh, it lives in the stomach essentially forever, and it can increase the risk not only for ulcers, but as well as, as, well as stomach cancer. Um, there actually are not guidelines for testing for H. pylori, but certainly if someone is diagnosed with H. pylori, maybe because they have an ulcer or acid reflux, uh, they can actually receive two weeks of um, antibi uh, antibiotics and antacids to get rid of it. So, you know, turning to diagnosis, um, you know, the, the diagnosis of stomach cancer is prompted by, you know, what are pretty nonspecific symptoms, meaning it could range from, you know, nausea to feeling full to some discomfort. Um, and, and a lot of the times the symptoms are con confused with that of an ulcer or reflux. So it's actually not uncommon for the diagnosis to be delayed uh, for at least a couple of months after someone begins to develop symptoms. So probably the most important test in establishing the diagnosis is an endoscopy, but that's probably the first test that's done, or it's, it's kind of the definitive test that's done uh, when a patient has, has the symptoms that I just managed, that I just mentioned. 
So, so the endoscopy involves putting a camera down into the stomach and looking around, and if there's something abnormal that's seen, that's biopsied. So that also allows us to obtain in a pathologic confirmation uh, that we are dealing with stomach cancer. Beyond that, we would obtain some kind of imaging. So that would be either a CAT scan or, or a PET scan. It could be CAT scan and or PET scan, uh, depending on what we see on the CAT scan. But that really allows us uh, to see or determine whether the cancer has spread or not. And really, the treatment, the treatment options um, are, are strongly determined by whether the cancer has spread or whether it has not spread. Now, for cancers that have not spread uh, on a CAT scan or a PET scan, uh, we would also consider two additional tests before making a treatment plan. Uh, the first is what's called an endoscopic ultrasound. So it's like an endoscopy where we go down into the stomach with a camera, but there is an ultrasound probe that's attached to the um, tumor. Uh, sorry, there's an ultrasound probe that's attached to the camera that allows us to more accurately stage the size of the tumor, how big it is, how deep it's growing through the walls of the stomach, as well as where the lymph nodes right next to the tumor are involved or not. Uh, and then a, a related test, uh, which is something that's performed through a small surgical procedure, is what's called a laparoscopy, where, where a surgeon would make tiny incisions in the abdominal wall. Uh, she or he then goes in with a camera also to look around to make sure that there's no spread of the cancer cells to the lining of the abdomen, what we call the peritoneum. Um, at the same time, they do washings, which is where they um, um, put normal saline, salt water, uh, into the abdomen, suck it back out, and we then look at it, the saline under the microscope to make sure that there are no cancer cells. So as I mentioned, I mean, you know, treatment really depends strongly on whether the cancer cells, uh, the tumors have spread or not. Uh, clearly, the more favorable situation is that if the tumor has not spread, in which case then, you know, we would be considering treatments really with the goal of, of curing the cancer. Um, there are various standards of care depending on where one is around the world, but in the U.S. and in Western Europe, for a localized stomach cancer that's not spread, uh, we typically would consider chemotherapy um, definitely before and then potentially after surgery, but we would do chemotherapy both before and after surgery. Um, you know, in the context of a localized stomach cancer, you know, surgery is clearly the most important component of curing the cancer, uh, but it's pretty clear that adding chemotherapy can further uh, improve outcomes. And the main goal of chemotherapy or the main role of chemotherapy is to treat any microscopic cells that have escaped uh, from, the main, from, from the main cancer it, itself. So standard of care really would be, again, what we call perioperative chemotherapy and surgery for a localized stomach cancer. On the other hand, if there is proof that the, that the cancer cells have spread and, and common areas of spread could include you know, the liver, uh, lymph nodes, and the peritoneum, the lining of the abdomen, that typically is not a role for surgery. Uh, that typically is not a role for radiation, in which case then we would consider chemotherapy as well as some newer treatment uh, with three goals, really, to, to shrink the tumors, to reduce any symptoms related to the cancer, and certainly to help patients live much, much longer than if they received no treatments whatsoever. Now, in that setting, when we give chemotherapy to control the cancer, um, the, the chemotherapy, some, I mean, would in, infrequently eliminate the cancer, so for most patients, if we cannot get rid of the cancer, uh, the chemotherapy treatments really are ongoing, meaning that as long as they're well tolerated, as long as they're working, we really would continue with the treatments. And the goal is to take, you know, turn what is a deadly situation into more of a chronic medical illness. So patients get the treatments, the treatments work, they control the cancer, 
And for the most part, they're able to continue to live their lives with good quality of life. So in this setting, you know, when we give uh, what we call palliative chemotherapy or systemic therapy, um, the, the, the mainstay, of course, is, is, is chemotherapy. Uh, chemotherapy drugs are, are medications that kill cells that grow quickly. Uh, cancer cells grow quickly, but, but so do blood cells, so do hair cells, so do the cells of the uh, gastrointestinal tract, and that relates to some of the side effects of chemotherapy as well. But, you know, certainly in 2023, in addition to chemotherapy, um, there are newer medications that we would, um, that we would add to the chemotherapy treatment that, that can make it work better. And in that regard, uh, currently in terms of standard indications, there are three additional tests that we would do to the cancer cells to try to figure out what else we can add to the chemotherapy. Um, and then these are all testing for proteins on the cancer cells. Uh, the first is, is something called HER2. Um, HER2 is a protein that's present in about 20 to 25 percent of some cancer cells. And in the event that uh, the HER2 protein is detected, ultimately that's actually a good thing. Um, the HER2 normally is a dependency or driving force of the cancer cells, but there are newer medications that we can add um, to the treatments to, to make them work better. Uh, and that's a medication called trastuzumab or Herceptin. It binds to the it binds to the HER2 and kind of blocks or negates it. Uh, in the U.S., it's also considered standard of care. In addition to adding trastuzumab to chemotherapy, uh, we would add uh, an immunotherapy medication called pembrolizumab. Now, immunotherapy is is a separate class of medications. Immunotherapy medications um, stimulate the immune system, so the immune system wakes up, recognizes, and attacks cancer cells. Uh, and and for HER2-positive HER2 tumors, the combination of trastuzumab chemotherapy and an immunotherapy medication called pembrolizumab would be considered standard. Now, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy is also something that we would consider based on, the, and based on another protein, even if the cancer cells are HER2-negative. And, and that other protein is called PD-L1. Um, it, it's a long, it actually stands for something called programmed death ligand 1, but the bottom line is that when the PDL1 protein is present on cancer cells, we think that those cancer cells are more likely to respond to immunotherapy. So there is a scoring system where we test how much PDL1 protein is present on the cancer cells. Uh, and, 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 and in general, my practice would be to consider adding immunotherapy, so either pembrolizumab or a very similar drug called nivolumab to the chemotherapy uh, if the PDL1 protein is present. Uh, if the PDL1 protein is not present at all, I, I would not add, um, I would not add um, uh, immunotherapy. Uh, and then the last situation, or the, the last kind of um, test that we do, are for something called mismatch repair proteins, or MMR. And with HER2 and with PDL1, we actually want those proteins to be present before we would add respective drugs. It's actually a different situation with the, with the mismatch repair proteins. If the mismatch repair proteins are missing, um, then that's a very spe specific situation called mismatch repair protein deficient. Uh, oh, and it also has a synonym. It's also called microsatellite unstable. Now, this is, very, this is a very rare kind of stomach cancer. It's really only about 3 to 4% of stomach cancers in the metastatic setting. But mismatch repair protein deficient or microsatellite unstable um, stomach cancer cells uh, respond dramatically to immunotherapy. They respond even better to immunotherapy uh, than if just the PDL1 protein is present. Uh, and in fact, in, in the context of patients where the cancer is metastasized, um, uh, MMR deficient slash microsatellite unstable cancers can actually be cured with immunotherapy alone. So certainly in that case, it would also be standard to consider 
um, adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy uh, with the expectation and hope that we would have you know, very, very favorable outcomes. Uh, very quickly, and, then this, and this kind of crosses um, the, the boundary of what Dr. Sambon is going to talk about, there is a new protein that, uh, that probably will become relevant over the next couple of months. Uh, it has an odd name. It's called Claudin 18.2. Uh, and Claudin 18.2 is, is present in about 40% of semi-cancer cells. And we heard from a, uh, an important study that was presented in January and then subsequently published that when the Claudin protein is present, uh, we can add a new drug. The drug is called Zobituximab. We add a new drug uh, to, to chemotherapy, but Zobituximab blocks the Claudin 18.2. Uh, and adding Zobituximab to chemotherapy under those circumstances also you know, uh, makes things work better and helps patients live longer. So currently, Zobituximab, uh, as well as a test for the Claudin protein, uh, is being evaluated by the FDA, but the hope is that by late summer, early fall, it will be commercially available um, here in the U.S. and, and, and FDA approved. Um, last, uh, last topic to talk about really was uh, any updates from, from uh, ASCO. The, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, I would say that there were no major updates in stomach cancer. Um, so the standard of care really at this point in time you know, um, you know, in, for someone with metastatic disease, will be to test for HER2, mismatch repair protein, and pd one protein, and we make treatment decisions based on that. But really just around the corner, we expect that testing for Claudin 18.2 will also become available, will also become standard of care um, based on FDA approval of, of a drug called Zobituximab that we do expect in, in the next couple of months. So, you know, with that, I'll, I'll, um, I'll stop and hand it over to my colleagues. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ku. That was a wonderful presentation and really set the stage for today's program. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Mohamed Bassam Sanbal, and Dr. Sanbal is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Sunball will be addressing precision medicine, predicting response to treatment, the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment choice options, controlling treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and communicating communication guidelines for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sanbal. Thank you, Carolyn, and thanks, everyone, uh, for joining. It's always a pleasure to uh, join this uh, fantastic uh, workshop and meeting. So, um, I, I mean, I'm going to first talk about uh, precision medicine, and, and uh, really, as you heard from Dr. Ku, uh, you know, when after you diagnose this, we, we diagnose this cancer, we have several regimens to choose from. And uh, chemotherapy, as you heard, is really the backbone uh, of, of these treatments for the majority of patients. And then we add immunotherapy, targeted therapy, or even sometimes both targeted therapy and immunotherapy at the same time. So as you, as you, you heard, I mean, and as you can see, the field is moving and it has moved really in the last five years significantly that now when I see, for example, five patients with gastric cancer coming to my clinic on one day, um, I might prescribe five different regimens to these patients because although these patients may have the, uh, the cancer that has a label saying gastric cancer, but these cancers 
uh, might behave differently and they're actually uh, different in, uh, entities. So, and that goes really to what we mean by precision medicine, and meaning that finding the right target and treating that patient with the appropriate drug uh, or regimen that suits that target. Uh, for example, sometimes you hear us uh, calling these targets uh, as biomarkers, and that's what we hear, what we mean by biomarkers. And you heard from Dr. Uh, Kude the, the three main biomarkers that we test for: PDL1, HER2, and MMR. And uh, and you heard that there is a, a another one that's probably uh, gonna be as a standard of care as well to be tested for the Claudine 18.2. Uh, hopefully and probably in the next few months or six months uh, it will be available to test for that biomarker in order to give the uh, the medication, the zolbatuximab, to be added to the uh, chemotherapy. Um, and of course, I mean, all, all of what we've, we've learned uh, so far about these biomarkers and all of that uh, is really through research and through uh, clinical studies. And um, just off note, sometimes patients ask if these biomarkers, uh, if, the, if testing for them is covered by the insurance. And the answer is actually yes. Uh, they're all covered by insurance. And if not covered by insurance, then there's probably uh, an error in coding or something like that. So you should check with your uh, doctor because guidelines recommend testing for these biomarkers and uh, therefore they are covered by insurance. Um, and I, as you, I mean, as you heard and and uh, and and uh, can can now imagine, I mean, research is very very important. Clinical trials are very important. That's how we've learned that uh, about all of these biomarkers. For example, 15 years ago, you know, any patient would have gotten just chemotherapy. It's the same treatment for all patients. Now we know about all of these details just because uh, of all the research that have been done. And uh, uh, when we see a drug uh, that uh, usually that works in the lab, I mean, that's how the story begins. I mean, there is a work in the lab that's being done in the laboratory, and, and when, when there is a drug that has a promise, uh, we take that drug from, from the lab and we, we give it to uh, patients, of course, in a controlled uh, environment in what we call a phase one clinical trial, um, and we look carefully for that drug side effects and look at the right dose. And, and really what we're trying to find is the balance between the, the, the side effects uh, of that drug and uh, uh, the effectiveness and how, uh, how good that w drug works. If we see a good balance, meaning that uh, the benefits of the drug outweigh the side effects, then we take it to phase two study where we study it or more uh, uh, patients and bigger group of patients. Um, and then if we see a promise, then we take it to the big uh, study, which is called the phase three study, which compare this, uh, the, the new regimen or the new drug to the standard of care. So all, all what uh, you've heard so far uh, with all of these regimens and drugs, again, they, they got here because of studies and because of drugs. And of course, the core uh, component and the main uh, people who are uh, really we're thankful for, for, for these uh, drugs and for these studies are really patients. Uh, um, the patients who are listening, patients who have participated in these clinical trials because of the altruism of these patients. That's how we got here. Um, and, and of course, as part of taking off, uh, care of patients, it's not just uh, to choose the right drug and, and the right regimen, but also to take care of, uh, of symptoms and making sure that the patients will be able to tolerate treatments. 
which gets to the the second thing I'm going to talk about, which is how to control um, side effects, uh, symptoms, and pain. And we know that symptoms that patients with cancer or stomach cancer specifically uh, have uh, can be from uh, two main things. You can think of it from the cancer itself or from uh, the uh, treatments used, uh, side effects. So first of all, um, a big part of the of, of, of managing the symptoms of, of uh, is, is really to manage this, uh, the, the cancer itself and treat the cancer itself. Uh, for example, the weight loss, um, appetite loss, uh, all of these things are usually caused by uh, hormones produced by the cancer. And a lot of times, uh, treating the cancer itself will improve some of these symptoms. Uh, in addition, uh, if the cancer is located at the junction between the stomach and the esophagus, for example, it's what we call gastroesophageal uh, junction cancer, uh, they can cause problems with swallowing, what we call dysphagia. And sometimes we ask the gastrointestinal doctors to go down with a scope and uh, open things up and open the narrowing to, so that the swallowing uh, can get relieved and uh, the pain, if there is any pain, uh, get better. Um, also, sometimes the cancer itself might be pushing uh, with a mass pushing on something, or maybe it's in the bone, and you can uh, see that, that your doctor might prescribe you pain medication or refer you to uh, pain medicine or refer you to what we call palliative care team, which are a group of doctors and nurses and social workers. Uh, they, they help patients with their symptoms uh, while getting treatment. So a lot of these symptoms arise uh, from the cancer itself, but as I mentioned, uh, the, the treatments we use with chemotherapy and immunotherapy have their own side effects as well. Uh, for example, we hear about nausea, uh, diarrhea, loose stool, uh, or even neuropathy, which is uh, the feeling of, of tingling and sensation in the uh, uh, hands or, or, or toes. Uh, but it's very important to note and know that um, with all the advancements that we've had with the regimens, we've also have adma advancements in, in, in the supportive care medications. So, so for example, the nausea medications we use now are completely different and, and better than the nausea medications that we used uh, 15 and 20 years ago. So all, all of these, uh, you, know, you know, when you hear stories about you know, vomiting and, and all of these things, uh, these, you know, when like to to kind of uh, to kind of have see or or hear that patient is is being admitted to the hospital, for example, for because of vomiting, that's not a common thing. Usually, there is something going on. We don't expect that with our therapies. If they are vomiting with severe vomiting, despite medications, there is something going on. Either better optimization of of the of their medications, or or there is a, another thing that's going on. So most patients really have, have manageable nausea, if any, uh, with, with the medications that we have uh, uh, these days. Uh, so um, advancements not in the treatments themselves, but also tr advancements in uh, treating the cancer itself, but also advancements in, in the supportive uh, care, care medication. And as you can see in here, I mean, all of these elements require very good communication between you and your health team to achieve the the best results possible, uh, and that now requires, you know, uh, multidisciplinary care uh, aspects uh, of, of, of uh, taking care of patients, uh, you know, with different team members. So your oncologist might, uh, as I say, uh, as I said, um, consult with palliative care, pain med uh, medicine doctors, 
social workers, nutritionists, uh, radiation oncologists, and, and others. And all of that care is really triggered by communication between you and your healthcare uh, professional. Always remember, you know, if, if the doctor or the care team does not hear from you, that they assume that everything is going well. So if you have a problem or you have a side effect or anything like that, please, please, please uh, communicate to your uh, healthcare uh, members. Um, and, and lastly, I want to talk about telehealth because now they're uh, more and more common than before, and that's one of the uh, few uh, benefits of, of COVID is really that uh, made the virtual visits or video visits more, more commonly uh, acceptable and more commonly uh, uh, available for patients and their, and their uh, physicians and team members. Uh, and these visits, uh, of course, has helped. I mean, they've helped a lot with facilitating the care, especially for patients out of states and avoiding unnecessary travels when, when possible. But at the same time, uh, I mean, there are a few things that you should consider when you're scheduling or requesting a virtual visit or, or a video visit. Uh, first of all, ask yourself, is this visit appropriate to be virtual? Uh, for example, if you have a new symptom that requires examination, and that's very concerning to you, uh, that probably better to be a face-to-face -face visit and might be appropriate to be a face-to-face -face rather than a video visit. Also, I mean, you might request a video visit, but maybe your doctor or the team members have something in mind to, to consider, and they might ask you to do a face-to-face -face visit as more appropriate thing. So that's another thing to also remember. And also, then, if, if the visit is appropriate, let's say that you schedule the visit, it's appropriate, it's a video visit, then please try to be prepared. I mean, as you do for the face-to-face -face visit, uh, be prepared with, the, for example, the environment that you're in. Uh, you should be in an environment with good Internet coverage, uh, quiet enough so that you can hear your doctor and then they can hear you. Uh, of course, it's not advisable to call, to call, for example, from a car or from a living room where there's a TV in the background or there's uh, like a dog barking or, or something or kids playing or something like that. So try to, uh, to, to, uh, to have a good environment so you can get the benefit uh, out of the visit. Um, also, at the beginning of the visit, it's a good idea to always introduce who you have with you in the room because your doctor might not be able to see uh, who's, you know, in the surrounding uh, or behind the laptop or something like that. It's really mainly to respect your privacy and make sure that, you know, your doctor knows that while they're talking to you, they're talking and there are other people in the room, for example. Uh, similarly, like any face-to-face -face visit, it's always great to be prepared with questions and things to discuss. I always appreciate when patients come into a visit or call in with a video visit and they have a list of uh, questions and they're organized in, in, in uh, addressing these questions and the points that they wanted to uh, discuss during the visit. Um, and of course, it's always important to be on time. And uh, with that, and with me trying to finish on time, I conclude my part of this presentation, and I thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Sandal. That was an outstanding presentation, very comprehensive. I know there will be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an di oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. 
Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential in the tolerance to your treatment and your quality of life. Your diet might be modified throughout your cancer treatment to assist with managing any potential side effects you may experience um, to ensure that you get the nutrition that you need. Some possible side effects that can come across um, during your, your treatment for gastric cancer include things like a decreased appetite, potentially reflux or indigestion, a feeling of fullness, um, nausea, possibly diarrhea, vomiting, and weight loss. A dietitian is a member of your healthcare team, and they can help provide you with suggestions to accomplish you in meeting your individual needs. Now, each patient's different, each treatment therapy is different, so each, each intervention is going to be different. So it's so important that you do spend time talking with your healthcare team about what you're experiencing and what you're going through. So a dietitian can help with not only the modification of a diet, but also talking about foods to focus on um, based on what your nutrition goals are. Um, they can give you information based on calorie needs, protein needs, fluid needs, so that you're staying hydrated during your therapy. And one of the goals that we work to try to accomplish during therapy is to maintain your weight. Avoid any unintentional significant weight loss. Weight loss is um, one of the things that we focus on primarily because it's objective it's going to tell us, are you eating enough? Are you getting the nutrition that you need? And some of the side effects from unintentional weight loss include things like loss of lean muscle mass. And muscle mass is very, very important. It helps us have um, the endurance to do the things that we want to do, getting up, moving around, enjoying our lives, being active. It can also impact your immune system. It can increase your feeling of weakness, and it can also increase your risk of falling. It can improve. It can um, impact um, your wound healing, for example, or even delay your treatment. So being connected with your healthcare team is essential so we can help support you during this time. Now, if you're struggling with intake by mouth, um, your team may talk with you about a feeding tube. Um, this is a method to provide you an alternative way to get your nutrition and hydration needs in. It's not anything to be afraid of. It's sometimes a very temporary thing. Um, some people keep it a little longer than others, but it is part of your treatment plan. So don't don't look at it as a failure or anything along those lines. It's just another tool in the toolbox to help you um, with doing the best that you can during this treatment. There are medications that the doctor will talk with you um, to help with assisting with your side effects. So make sure you understand how to take those medications. It's always helpful if you have another set of ears in the room. Um, if you're struggling with certain types of foods, take note of that. It helps us help you better. So um, any information you give is never too small. Don't feel like it's silly. All of it makes a difference and really helps us um, understand what you're going through. Um, maintaining your hydration. So we talk a lot about nutrition and we talk about weight loss and avoiding that, but hydration is very important. And oftentimes if you're not eating enough, you're usually not drinking enough. Um, dehydration can actually amplify the feeling of nausea and fatigue. It can make you feel dizzy and weak. But fluids, anything that's liquid at room temperature, things like milk, water, sports drinks, fruit juice. A general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Some treatments can increase this um, this need, but again, talking with your healthcare team will help you understand your unique needs even more.
So in closing, there are several members of the team. We're all here to help support you. A dietitian can help um, with, with you understanding how to eat better and how to maintain your weight and get the nutrition you need. Um, but know how to reach them and, and have that contact information on hand. I'm going to close with that and hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was an outstanding presentation and really an important one. Um, for everyone to understand um, the importance of really um, hydration and nutrition um, during your cancer treatment so that you can really um, do better during your treatment and, and actually have appropriate nutrients and food that you need and, and water um, to sustain your treatment. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Stacy Hirschman, and Ms. Hirschman is Executive Director Gastric Cancer Foundation, and she'll be addressing the Gastric Cancer Foundation's free programs and services and providing information about their website and how to get in touch with them. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Hirschman. Thank you, Carolyn. And thank you to everyone who's on, on the line. Um, I'm really honored, um, along with the foundation, to partner with all of you to make the best current reliable information available to patients and families, on, not just across the country, but all around the globe. Um, the, the advancements that we've just heard about um, is really encouraging, and the pace of progress um, is exciting. Um, so I always like to take a moment just to acknowledge that there is hope. And along with all the treatments, I believe that hope is a truly essential part of this cancer journey. Um, I want to just briefly highlight a few things that are offered by the Gastric Cancer Foundation, um, and I encourage you to visit our website, which is gastriccancer.org, um, where you can learn more about our full menu of programs and services and access a lot of information. Um, first of all, um, research is a major focus of our organization, and by the end of this year, we will have granted nearly $4 million to promising new projects. Um, research is key to continued advances, and so I want you to know that you can also be an important part of it. If you're a patient or a close family member, please check out the Gastric Cancer Registry and consider providing your story and maybe a tissue or saliva sample so we can continue to um, give the scientists who are trying to find better diagnostics and treatments um, the material and the information that they need to do the job. Um, the registry team can answer all of your questions and assist with the registration. Talked briefly about clinical trials today. They're essential. They're the path to approving and making new treatments available, but we know that this is a very confusing part of the journey. Um, so we offer a free, unbiased, no pressure, no obligation navigator service to help patients learn about trials and match with their, that match with their individual diagnosis. And I encourage you to check it out. Um, as always, information can be powerful and um, it's available to you. In terms of other resources, again, our website is a hub of information and links. It's gastrocancer.org. Um, we link to these workshops, and we post um, news about late-breaking developments um, in the field. 
You can also sign up for our e-newsletter so that information is delivered right to your inbox. We offer a safe online community that is exclusively for patients and caregivers. And that's a place where you can ask questions, share information experiences, and experiences, and also share your, your emotional journey with people who understand this disease firsthand. Um, it's really um, very moving and impressive to see how practical and caring these exchanges are online. They're honest interactions between people who are on the same journey. So again, the link is on our homepage, and I hope you'll check it out. Um, and last but not least, the Gastro Cancer Foundation offers a nutrition support series called the Gesundheit Kitchen, which is a wonderful resource for patients and families who want tips on how to live and even enjoy eating after treatment and to get the nutrition that you need. Hans Rufert, who is a gastric cancer survivor and a professional chef, is joined by a licensed dietitian um, in short video episodes. And Hans knows what this is like firsthand, and I think you'll um, benefit from his spirit, humor, and optimism um, in addition to his practical um, ideas. All, all episodes are archived on our website. Um, I hope you'll take a look. We've recently made some improvements and now have a large library of information and recipes that you can download. Um, so I'll stop there. I'll wrap up as I always do. No one needs to face this alone. And I really don't think any which one should try. So it makes me especially glad that you've joined us for this workshop today. Um, I hope you'll take advantage of all of the support and resources that are available for you. And gastrocancer.org might be a good place for you to start. Carolyn, I'll turn it back to you. Oh, thank you, Ms. Hirschman. That was really lovely and really just amazingly wonderful information. Um, I would, if you haven't already visited the Gastric Cancer Foundation website, please do. Um, and also um, their kitchen um, tips are wonderful, so that, that might be a wonderful resource. And all of, it sounds like the entire website is just chock full of information. It's your go-to place um, when you have gastric cancer, definitely. So thank you. I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. And I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. I'm, I'm Dr. Carolyn Mester. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I'm going to talk to you about Cancer Care's free programs and services. So many people contact Cancer Care on a hope line. People in the United States call our 800-813-4673 number. And that number usually connects them to an oncology social worker. Our oncology social workers answer the phone so that when you call, you'll be immediately connected to an oncology social worker. And usually people have a question that they need to have answered or a concern, and so the social worker addresses that concern and then goes over with them all the services that we offer. So what are those services? So we do offer practical financial and co-payment assistance, which is very important for people at this time and always, actually. In our um, close to 80-year history, um, those services have been around for a very long time, particularly the financial assistance um, has been a very, and practical assistance has been a very important part of um, the services that we offer. 
Um, in addition, we do offer um, support services with an oncology social worker. We do have online support groups, and those support groups are for every type of cancer and also for all um, people. So there are, um, there are online support groups for caregivers, for young adult caregivers, for partners, um, for um, older adults, younger adults. So it really covers the whole spectrum of, of people uh, that are coping with, uh, with cancer and with gastric cancer. Um, in addition to that, we also offer publications, which you can download from our website. And, the, and again, the publications kind of mirror what we are doing on our workshops. Um, so they're on many different uh, cancer topics and many different cancer types, including gastric cancer. And um, we do have a host of other services. And if you visit our website, www.cancercare.org, you'll be able to see all the services that we offer. We're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is for um, Dr. Sunbelt. What medication is used to manage nausea? Is it only ondansetron? On on Thank you. That's, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, uh, the way to look at nausea, I mean, there is uh, two uh, aspects. The first aspect is to prevent the nausea, and then the other is to treat the nausea. So to, to prevent the nausea intravenously, we give, uh, depending on the regimen, but we give uh, dexamethasone, which is steroid, um, and then we have also other options such as andansetron, and then we have palansetron, or the other name is aloxy. And then we have uh, fosaprepitant, which is the other name is Ament. Uh, those are all intravenously. Uh, for oral uh, nausea uh, uh, management, we have uh, we use Zofran or, or Nisotron. We use uh, Compazine. Uh, both of these are most commonly are as needed. Uh, and then if these two are not working, a lot of times we go to the third. Um, option, which is either lorazepam, which is the Ativan. It's an anti-anxiety medication, but works for nausea. And sometimes we use, again, also depending on the regimen, depending on the situation and patient, we use uh, oral dexamethasone for a few days, uh, which is, again, it's a steroid. Um, or we use uh, olanzapine, which is actually an excellent anti-nausea medication. It's by Classification, if you look it up, it's, uh, it's an antipsychotic medication, but it has been studied and shown to actually work very well for nausea in cancer patients. Uh, the name is Olanzapine, O-L-A-N-Z-A-P-I-N. Uh, the, um, the brand name is Zyprexa. Uh, so, yeah, so many medications are available. And then beyond that, there are also other medications that are used uh, less commonly. But that's usually how I manage nausea. Excellent. Thank you. And a um, question for Dr. Ku. Is precision medicine the response to treatment available to all those beginning chemotherapy in all states? And does insurance and Medicare pay for it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think what's certainly available to anyone and insurance will pay for and is considered standard of care uh, is to do some kind of genetic testing of the tumor cells. Um, the, the most established option still remains what we call next-generation sequencing, 
where you take, you know, part of the tumor, slides from the tumor, uh, and that's, and, and we kind of test, you know, up to 500 genes within the cancer cells. Uh, and if you do identify something that you can act on, you know, some weakness or alterations of the cancer cells, that's probably the part that, that's, a, that's a little bit more complicated, um, meaning that uh, if, if there is, um, you know, a lot of the times, you know, things that we can act on are still experimental, meaning that in order for someone to be able to receive that particular treatment, uh, they would have to participate in a, in, in a study. Um, uh, in that case, I mean, you know, the study will pay for everything that is not standard, uh, but standard tests such as blood tests or CAT scans or doctor's visits uh, or even kind of the fusion of medications, the, that insurance would, would pay for. Um, so I, I think it's always important to think that, you know, when we're doing genetic testing of the tumor cells, you know, that, that patients also have to have some access to experimental options because it doesn't really make sense to identify, you know, something on, on genetic testing. But, but if patients don't have access to studies, uh, then it's also kind of a dead end. So what they might want to do is check with their healthcare team about that in terms of the people the usually have financial navigators in most medical centers that can help them to figure this out right. in terms of Well, the, the, again, like I said, the genetic testing is typically considered standard of care, and most of the time would you know, be paid for by private insurance and Medicare and Medicaid. But again, the, the other part of it is that if you identify some you know, targeted, what we call targeted therapy, um, you know, offhand, there really are no targeted therapies that are FDA approved in, in, in stomach cancer except other than the ones that we talked about. So other things that show up are promising, and, and, but they remain experimental. So, so patients still have to have access to a clinical study to receive this targeted therapy. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, so f uh, for Dr. S uh, Sunball, my sister has stomach cancer stage four, and she has had eight cycles of FLOT. The first four, four cycles were a great adduction of the cancer in the stomach and peritoneum, but the second four cycles didn't show any results. What are the reasons for that? It would be, it would, it would be better to be on Folfox. Um, that would just be, a, I guess, to answer that in a general way since this is a very specific question here. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can comment in general on the on uh, on the those aspects, uh, I can't comment specifically, as you mentioned, on this specific case. But uh, mm -hmm. um, from what I understood, that the patient has been on FLOT, uh, FLOT, which is technically <clears throat> FLOT in a way is is really Folfox plus docetaxel. So it has five of you oxaliplatin, which what we call Folfox, uh, and then co combined with docetaxel, and then we combine. We it's called FLOT. So technically, the patient has been to answer the question. The patient has been receiving uh, the component of Folfox, anyways. Uh, now, let me answer the question about why why is this happening after uh, initial response, or uh, now the cancer is is stopping to uh, respond. Uh, I mean, it's very common for uh, for for treatments in in uh, cancer that we even if when when we see initial shrinkage of the disease. At some point, uh, it will the effect will plateau, and we won't see more uh, response, more shrinkage, um, and that's usually for for FLOT and Folfox. Most of the times, it's really about three to four months into it, we see that the you know the maximum response from, or maximum shrinkage has been achieved, 
And then beyond that is mainly stabilization of disease. So that's just kind of to answer the question. Um, but uh, about the details and, and uh, the details pertaining to this uh, case, uh, I, I, don't, I cannot comment on that, of course, because I don't have all the information. So we do suggest that you go back to your um, sister's physician or your sister and you go back and ask the questions. But it was good to try it out here. But to some extent, the specifics of your sister would be important to go to your healthcare team to ask that question as well. So good, good practice run here, um, which is always a good idea. Um, um, and um, a question f for Dr. Um, Koo. Can you please explain the difference between a guest Hysterectomy versus a gastroenterostomy, and is one of both of these types of surgeries typically paired with radiation or chemo? Yeah, well, I mean, a gastrectomy is is, is um, easy to explain. The gastrectomy involves removing either all or part of the stomach. So, a total gastrectomy will be removing all of the stomach. Um, what's called a subtotal gastrectomy. Uh, sometimes it's called a distal gastrectomy means that we're only removing half of the stomach, typically kind of the second half of the stomach. Um, I'm not sure that I heard the other term correctly. Uh, a gastroenterostomy is, is not a surgery at all, um, uh, but um, technically that refers to putting a tube uh, either into the small intestines or into the stomach, so what we typically would, would call a feeding tube. Um, um, yeah, so maybe I'm misunderstanding that question. And I think the last part of the question is uh, whether this is ever paired with radiation. So I, 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 will, I will, you know, take that in, in conjunction with someone who needs to have their stomach removed. So I would say it's relatively, I mean, it's become less and less common for us to consider radiation along with uh, gastrectomy, the surgery to remove the stomach. Um, so typically, I think, I'd, as I mentioned, for a localized stomach cancer, where patients are candidates ultimately to undergo gastrectomy, we typically give chemotherapy instead of chemotherapy and radiation. Um, now, certainly there are tumors that are kind of at the junction between the esophagus and the stomach, where we sometimes would think about radiation, um, but we really think of those more as esophageal cancers than stomach cancers. Um, the other situation where, where radiation used to be considered was in patients who had initially undergone a gastrectomy you know, had the stomach removed, and then subsequently they received chemotherapy with radiation in a preventative way to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. Um, this was based on a study that was done more than 20 years ago, and we hardly ever do that anymore, and that's in large part because the quality of the surgery um, in the U.S. has improved, and we think that with good quality surgery, actually we know that with good quality surgery, um, in patients who've had a gastrectomy where a lot of lymph nodes are removed, uh, that there's actually no benefit from giving radiation after that as a preventative treatment. Thank you so much, Dr. Ku. And a question for Dr. Sanpo. What is the connection between gastric cancer and workers in the coal, metal, and rubber industries? For Dr. Sanpo. Um, I mean, there are, uh, stomach cancer um, has some uh, connection between, I mean, there is some connection between the stomach cancer and uh, environmental exposures or, or even diet, for example. I mean, that's why one of the reasons why uh, we know that environmentally uh, in Eastern Asia uh, and some endemic areas in the world, there is a connection between, uh, they have increased risk of, of stomach cancer. Um, 
I'm actually not sure uh, specifically for uh, coal mining and stomach cancer if there is any connection. Um, I it's not one of the ones or one of the th the things that I usually think of, uh, but I have to look it up actually. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Ku has uh, any insight on that. Yeah, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. No, I don't believe there's an association. I mean, unfortunately, I think with coal mining, I think most of the issues are, I think, as we would expect, related to kind of, you know, the dust getting into the lungs. So certainly there are a lot of lung issues and, you know, uh, um, I mean, there are a lot of, yeah, breathing issues related to that. Um, I think to cause stomach cancer, you would have to ingest, you know, some of the particles, which I think is possible, but uh, I agree. I'm not aware that there's a higher association uh, between coal miners and stomach cancer. Excellent. And uh, just the last question, Dr. Ku, is there other trials for stomach cancer stage four with METS only in the peritoneum for young women 30 years old? Yeah, so so I think, I mean, you know, that's a really difficult scenario. So I think the, so I, I think this question actually raises a really important point. So most clinical studies require um, what we call measurable disease, meaning that on a CAT scan, we have to see either an enlarged lymph node or we have to see a tumor in the liver or the lungs that we can easily measure. So, I mean, you know, if, if we think of tumors being like little ping pong balls, um, you know, we have to be able to measure those. And the reason why studies require that is that, you know, these tumors getting smaller or staying the same is a good thing. You know, these tumors, these tumors getting bigger or new tumors appearing would be a bad thing. So being able to assess you know, what we call, you know, the response rate to, a, to an experimental treatment is an important part of, you know, evaluating whether that treatment is, is, is working or not. Now, one of the challenges with stomach cancer is, especially for patients where the cancer is in the peritoneum, um, they don't, the tumors don't, the cancer doesn't form, you know, tumors that we can easily measure. And, and in fact, instead, it's more of a quantitative assessment, meaning that, uh, you know, a radiologist can say, oh, it's a little bit bigger, or it's a little bit smaller, or it's the same, but they're not able to measure it um, accurately. And, and that also goes for the fluid that can sometimes develop in the abdomen, what we call ascites. So, you know, sometimes for patients, or a lot of times for, for patients with stomach cancer, or with any cancer that, that goes to the peritoneum, unless there's something that we can measure, then we, we, may not, we, we may not unfortunately have an experimental option, you know, for, for that person. Of, of course, all standard options are, are still available, um, and, and, but, but if there isn't something we can easily measure, then a study may, may not be a good option. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, can, I, can I comment here? Uh, yes. Oh, please. Yeah. Yes. I completely agree with, with Dr. Ku, and I, I don't know if the patient, because she's young or he's young, if they're asking uh, specifically um, for the reasons of what's called cytoreductive surgery and uh, um, HIPEC or PIPEC, but sometimes, um, especially in Asia, these aggressive surgeries <clears throat> uh, are, are being done when uh, the cancer is limited to, the, for example, the stomach and the peritoneum. So if that's what the if the if the person asking that question that's what they're asking about I mean they can find they can ask uh, one of the ter they can ask their doctor to refer them to one of the tertiary centers who perform that in the U.S. there are only few centers in the U.S. that consider doing that and there are and I wouldn't do that you know, without a study there are some studies ongoing for example there is a study um, of using a technology called um, HIPEC or PIPEC even the, the newer ones PIPEC 
which is giving chemotherapy inside the peritoneum and the abdominal cavi- cavity. Uh, but that's on a study. Uh, there's one that I'm, I'm, I know of is in uh, uh, City of Hope uh, Cancer Center, and then there's one in uh, Mayo, Florida. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's if, if that's the question. Uh, but I completely agree with what Dr. Kuhn mentioned as well. Excellent, thank you. And I'm going to, as we conclude the program, I'm going to ask our speakers if they would just provide a takeaway, starting with Dr. Ku, then Dr. Sonball, um, and then Ms. Hirschman. So, um, Dr. Ku, do you want to go first? Just a takeaway, what you people would take away from today's program. I guess I would say one of two things. I mean, stomach cancer, you know, I think as we've discussed, is, is, a, is a pretty uncommon cancer in the U.S. And I think, as with all things, that are, you know, it's important to be treated by a group that kind of sees this problem you know, all the time. So I think, I, I do think that it, 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 it's helpful uh, to, to seek out, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, places and groups that treat stomach cancer frequently. And the other point I would make is that, you know, over the last five or 10 years, um, you know, the standard of care has, you know, slowly improved and, and, you know, outcomes now are certainly better than they were before. A lot of that is because of, you know, patients participating in clinical studies. We still have a lot more work to do. Uh, but, you know, I think there, there, there are absolutely reasons to be all hopeful and optimistic. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Santal? Yeah, no, I, I echo what uh, Dr. Kuhn mentioned, uh, emphasize on the importance of, of getting a second uh, opinion uh, just because of the rarity of, of uh, these, or relatively, these cancers are rare in the U.S. compared to other cancers. So um, it's, never, uh, it's never wrong to get a second opinion. Sometimes patients or families get, uh, you know, those concerns, oh, am I going to offend my doctor getting a second opinion or something like that. But I always tell patients, you know, if your doctor gets offended or, or they don't like the fact that you're getting a second opinion, that means that they're not the right doctor, I mean, uh, for you because second opinion is a common thing in oncology and cancer. So always uh, try to get a second opinion if you get diagnosed with gastric cancer. Um, and then the other thing is as what Dr who mentioned, uh, there is definitely a hope. Things are getting better and have gotten significantly better, especially over the last few years. So uh, please um, uh, keep keep on going, and we're, we're here to support you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and um, Ms. Hirschman. Well, I just applaud everyone who has dialed in to become more educated and informed about, about developments and I would just say um, and remind everyone that being an informed and active member of your own care team um, is is an appropriate and important role for you. And so, um, you know, join us back here and seek out information wherever you can get can get it. I learn each time I tune into these. Oh, well, thank you so much, Ms. Hirschman. And I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions, really. Um, really terrific questions on today's program. Um, and although we've done this program before, I have to say the questions again each time become more and more um, enlightened, more informed, and uh, I want to thank you all for, for those questions. Now, I, I do want to acknowledge that we were not able to take everyone's question in today's program. And so um, with that being said, I would just like to uh, remind all of you that if you asked a question, if you have a question yet to ask, and if you have a question that you're thinking of asking, please take it back to your treating, treating healthcare team. They know you the best. They have all your records. 
and they can actually um, you know, customize the answer to you. And also when you ask the question, you'll probably feel more confident because you've learned something today. So you have some additional information perhaps to share with your physician as well. Um, or you'll feel more confident in asking your question. Also, I just do want to echo what Ms. Hirschman has said, is that indeed you are not alone, that you have many resources at your disposal. And of course, your healthcare team is a big resource. It includes um, your physician, but it also includes your oncology nurse, your oncology social worker, your patient navigator, your financial navigator, lots of people who can help you with any questions that you may have in your own institution. And you also may contact, of course, the Gastric Cancer Foundation, which is a remarkable resource for anyone coping with gastric cancer. And also, um, we will provide other resources for you. Um, so you'll be getting a survey monkey from us in a couple of days. And when you get that survey monkey, it's an evaluation of the program. But it also will include um, all sorts of resources, um, websites, names of the institutions, 800 numbers, um, and websites for people who are international, of course, to be able to contact and um, so that you'll all be able to connect and get the information you need. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>